Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining me on the Bio Breakthroughs podcast. I'm your host, Jared Taylor. Joining me today is Nolan Townsend, the CEO at Lexio Therapeutics. Nolan, how are you today? I'm great and uh, great to be here on a, on a beautiful Friday morning. Absolutely. I'm excited for us to chat. Uh, we'll kick things off. If you could give us a little bit about your background and then kind of lead that into an overview of Lexio Therapeutics. Great. Well, um, so I'm uh, originally from, from the West Coast, from Los Angeles. Uh, I went to college on the East Coast um, and did my first work um, in the biopharmaceutical industry at, at Pfizer, um, where I worked across a variety of roles, um, both in and outside of the U.S., uh, the last few of which were uh, area president roles in Pfizer's rare disease business where I was involved, among other things, in some of the uh, gene therapy work that uh, Pfizer was em embarking upon at the time. Um, I was also involved in uh, some of the work in uh, precision uh, cardiovascular treatments. Um, I was involved with launching a treatment uh, called Tefamidus for transthyroid and amyloid uh, cardiomyopathy. So I had my first involvement in the precision cardiovascular space uh, through that role. And I think you'll see themes of uh, some of that experience in, you know, the work that, uh, you know, that Lexio is doing today. Um, so the origins of Lexio are uh, as a spin out uh, from the genetic medicine lab at Weill Cornell in New York. Uh, this is Ron Crystal's lab. Uh, Ron was one of the early pioneers in the gene therapy field. He was involved with uh, dosing the first patients with gene therapy, utilizing a virus in the early 90s. And he's been involved in, you know, several other milestones in the field since then. And Ron had accumulated this very interesting pipeline of uh, gene therapy programs in his academic lab. I say interesting for a few reasons. One, just the pure number of programs and that he had uh, almost 18 programs sitting across uh, five different therapeutic areas. Um, but also the target of the programs was interesting in that um, he had begun to apply gene therapy beyond some of the you know, ultra rare and rare monogenic diseases that, you know, the gene therapy field is, um, you know, has been historically focused on and, to, you know, to a large extent is focused on today. He'd begun to apply gene therapy to uh, non-rare, um, to non-rare conditions. Uh, so in this one you know, academic pipeline, I could sort of see the full evolution of the, you know, gene therapy field into, you know, from the rare monogenic, rare monogenic diseases that gene therapy is focused on today, ultimately to, um, lar larger diseases that could have this broader, you know, societal impact. Um, so we, you know, formed the concept of Lexio around, you know, this academic pipeline. We had some decisions to make about the, you know, disease areas to focus on. Um, we decided to focus on uh, in, in one, one side of our pipeline, uh, genetic cardiovascular diseases. Um, I can give some context about why, you know, we decided to focus there. And then we also decided to focus on um, central nervous system diseases, of which a large portion of our pipeline was uh, treating a gene variant associated with Alzheimer's disease, the APOE4 gene. And, you know, the question I commonly get is what is the link between genetic cardiovascular diseases and, uh, and Alzheimer's disease? Uh, there is a link. It, it's probably not obvious. Um, so, you know, as we look at taking first the cardiovascular field, uh, there's a uh, very large, obviously, uh, unmet need in the cardiovascular treatment area. Um, there's a lot of existing commercial therapies uh, in, in the cardiovascular space, um, but there's very few precision medicines in the cardiovascular space. Uh, I'd say less than 10% uh, 
of the total um, you know, revenue in the cardiovascular space is coming from precision therapies. And I would compare this to oncology, uh, where today probably 50 to 60% of treatments in oncology are you know, precision therapies. Um, and there are reasons why each of these disease areas has evolved in that particular way. But I think we're seeing a turning point in the cardiovascular treatment landscape where we think you know, precision therapies will play a more significant role um, and we'll, this will begin to look a lot more like oncology, that, you know, breaking these cardiovascular diseases into their genetic components and then applying precision therapies to treat them will be the future of the cardiovascular treatment landscape. And so, in part, you know, Lexio's uh, company profile thesis and mission is focused on um, being a leading company in the precision cardiovascular space and, and delivering gene therapies to treat some of those uh, genetic uh, cardiomyopathies that um, are you know, today, some of them are untreated or uh, insufficiently treated. Interestingly, there's a um, similar paradigm, which we envision in the Alzheimer's disease space, that um, the treatments that have been recently approved and lecanemab and anacatumab are, are all one size fits all treatments that every patient, regardless of genotype, um, is, uh, you know, can access those treatments. The labels are, are you know, relatively broad. However, if you look into the data from those, uh, those, those studies, actually each of the genotypes within APOE, the apolipoprotein E, which is a, the gene that uh, confers, you know, risk or protection in Alzheimer's disease, um, responds differently to therapy. For example, APOE4s respond differently to therapy than APOE3s. So um, we believe precision medicine will play an important role in the uh, Alzheimer's disease space as well. Um, and we're advancing uh, several pre precision therapies to treat uh, patients in that in that disease area. So the entire thesis of Lexio is set up around um, the unmet need that we believe precision therapies can uh, you know can uh, deliver a treatment option for, um, and we believe the unmet need is the highest in the cardiovascular space and, and here in, in Alzheimer's disease as well. And, and Nolan, talk me through where your your product candidates are at today. Yeah. So we have uh, two ongoing uh, phase one, two studies, uh, one for on the cardiovascular side uh, for the cardiac pathology of a disease called Friedrich's ataxia. Um, we are uh, in the right in the middle of that study. We're expecting the first you know, clinical data readouts uh, in the first half of 2024 from this program. This is the first gene therapy for Friedrich's ataxia to enter the clinic. And um, we're excited to advance a therapy into a disease like this one with, you know, very high unmet need um, from a life expectancy point of view. Um, you know, 70% of the FA patients, the cause of death is cardiomyopathy. So we believe uh, that this potential therapy could have a su substantial impact on the, these patients' lives. Um, our second um, program in the, in the clinic today, also in a phase one, two study, is treating uh, APOE4 homozygous Alzheimer's disease. Um, and here we're delivering the APOE2 gene to the CNS of APOE4 homozygotes. And I can talk more about this uh, if, if it's of interest, but um, this is an ongoing phase one, two study for which we would expect to complete enrollment this year. We've actually read out low dose biomarker data associated with this program, showing a reduction in some of the biomarkers that are commonly associated with Alzheimer's disease. And this was at the uh, CTAD conference last year. Um, so some very good early clinical data. Uh, we'll have the full data data set reading out in 2024. Um, and I think for both programs, they address a very significant unmet need within those patient populations. Um, our next program to enter the clinic will be treating arrhythmogenic uh, right ventricular cardiomyopathy. So it's another cardiac program. 
and this program we would expect to have in the clinic uh, by by the end of this year. And and Nolan, can you talk me through a little bit about how Lexio, you know, how what you're what you're developing is different from the current treatments, um, specifically in the neurological and cardiac spaces today? Yeah, so I'll I'll start on the you know Alzheimer's side of things um, because there's obviously been a lot of developments in the treatment landscape for Alzheimer's disease over the last even couple of months or the last year. Um, it, it's sort of a dramatic change in that there was no you know there was no true you know therapy that was approved to treat the disease. Now we have two um, two with accelerated approvals, and then one I think will hopefully receive a, a full approval uh, shortly. Um, so both of those treatments, those are amyloid antibodies that are focused on lowering the amount of amyloid plaque burden in the brain, are focused on a single pathogenic mechanism of the disease. So they're, they're amyloid treatments. Um, however, what this may miss is that Alzheimer's is a very complex disease, and there are potentially other pathologies involved, like tau tangles, uh, blood-brain barrier disorder, inflammation, and so on. So uh, those treatments may not sufficiently treat the totality of this very complex disease. Uh, so what we're doing with our gene therapy is going upstream, you know, treating the genetics of Alzheimer's disease, which we expect to have a downstream impact on multiple different pathogenic mechanisms simultaneously. And so this is the only gene therapy for Alzheimer's disease that's in the clinic today. Um, and it's a unique approach, obviously, focused on the genetics of the disease. Now, what we were... Uh, it, what we're uh, interested to see in our phase one, two study is whether the addition of the APOE2 gene, so therefore focus on this genetics, does have a downstream impact on the different pathogenic mechanisms that are commonly associated with Alzheimer's disease. And importantly, we're thinking about amyloid beta, tau, phospho-tau, and does the addition of the APOE2 gene have an impact on those? And actually, our low-dose data did show um, that a reduction in amyloid beta, tau, and phospho-tau versus um, versus baseline, which shows, I guess, you know, very early proof of biology um, that treating the genetics is having this downstream impact. And I think, you know, this is common uh, as, as we look across genetic genetic diseases that the early treatments are, are focused downstream on um, a single pathogenic mechanism. But ultimately, in a lot of cases, you know, the genetics are, are what, what are what is the driver of the disease pathology. So on the cardiovascular side, I think it's um, you know also very interesting. Um, there's been challenges historically in uh, delivering what I call nucleic acids, nucleic acids or genetic payloads to, to the heart. A lot of this has been a challenge of delivery. Um, I think what we found is that, uh, at least as you know, the technology as it, as it exists today, you know, adeno-associated virus, so the, the AV vectors that we use, are probably the most efficient delivery system to uh, get nucleic acids in, into the heart. Um, and within that, I think we're using a highly, you know, uh, cardiovascular tropic uh, vector um, where we can very efficiently deliver these, call them genetic, you know, payloads to, to the heart. Um, so that's what's unique here. I think what's limited genetic medicines uh, in the cardiovascular space has been a challenge of delivery. I think we're finding increasingly more efficient, you know, cardiovascular delivery systems. And this will allow us to increase an, you know, ever greater number of cardiovascular diseases with you know, gene therapy, but I, it's not limited there. I would see other uh, genetic medicines, gene editing, you know, RNA therapeutics potentially as well uh, that can begin to, you know, can begin to treat, you know, cardiovascular diseases. Um, we have a number of programs now um, focused on loss of function uh, mutations, um, but obviously this technology can be applied to gain of function mutations as well. So I think we're really at the tip of the iceberg 
with respect to uh, the cardiovascular treatment landscape and what, you know, genetic medicines can, uh, can achieve there. Staying on, you know, ge- genetic medicine, gene therapy, I want to go into something that you talked about at bio, right? You were talking about accelerated approval. Can you provide some uh, perspective on the pathways needed specifically for accelerated approval in gene therapy? Yeah. So just some history on accelerated approvals. This is really you know, meant to um, deliver therapies to patients and diseases of very high unmet need. Uh, this started with the HIV AIDS crisis and the patient advocacy there to get treatments to patients faster. I um, mean, it has since been a pathway uh, broadly utilized in the oncology space um, and has been utilized in the rare disease space. Um, but, ha- you know, until now, until very recently, it has not been utilized as broadly within the genetic medicine or gene therapy space. Um, so we saw the first accelerated approval of a gene therapy uh, with one of the Bluebird therapies in the last couple of months. Uh, but interestingly, yesterday, uh, we had a significant milestone in uh, the accelerated approval landscape, which was the accelerated approval of Sarepta's Duchenne's muscular dystrophy uh, gene therapy. Um, so, you know, classically accelerated approvals, uh, instead of being based on uh, clinical outcomes data, they're based on surrogate uh, endpoints or intermediate clinical data. Um, so I think the misunderstanding sometimes is that this is, you know, potentially less robust data or that the approval is is not as uh, robustly reviewed by the FDA. I mean, these are, you know, these are FDA approvals. They're just using, you know, surrogate endpoints that are reasonably likely to predict, you know, the clinical outcomes. And the other aspect of an accelerated approval that's important to note is they require a, a confirmatory study that does demonstrate, you know, the clinical outcomes that are associated with the disease. So there is a ultimate, you know, clinical outcome study that um, is associated with, um, you know, an accelerated approval. So, um, and, and in most cases, that that, um, that outcome study needs to be ongoing at the time of the accelerated approval itself. And this is the case, for example, with, with Sarepta. So I think the the discussion around accelerated approvals has evolved quite significantly. Um, and one of the major challenges has been this unlinking of the accelerated approval itself from the ultimate reimbursement of the therapy. And this is what we saw in the Alzheimer's field um, is that uh, there, you know, both uh, products received an accelerated approval, but there was a um, reimbursement decision by um, by Medicare that in effect limited access of those therapies to patients. And this is really one of the first times that this has occurred. And it's a little bit of a troubling uh, concept because what it means is that the accelerated approval pathway, which is meant to deliver therapies, uh, you know, in, in diseases of high unmet need, which typically means, you know, life-threatening diseases or diseases like Alzheimer's disease, where if you progress, there's very, there probably is not a way to uh, reverse that, that progression. Um, you know, and, and our regulatory framework is, is set up to effectively deliver treatments faster to those patients. But if we now insert a, um, a reimbursement barrier for those therapies, this will bo- both deter investment of companies into accelerated approvals in the first place. But secondarily, um, we're effectively not allowing patients access to the therapies that they, you know, very, um, you know, th- that they need uh, and, and uh, you know, can of- oftentimes save their lives. Um, so that's one trend that that I think is uh, developing in a potentially somewhat troubling way. I think the other, um, you know, I, I think this is for the industry to, to think about is that 
there have been instances where uh, companies have not completed the um, confirmatory studies. Now, there are reasons for that, in that um, once a therapy is approved, sometimes it is challenging to uh, to have a, conf- a confirmatory clinical trial when there's a commercially available uh, treatment. So there are reasons for that. But I think as an industry, uh, you know, we need to pull together, uh, run the confirmatory studies. Ideally, the confirmatory study has started before the therapy is you know, has received an accelerated approval. So from a feasibility standpoint, you know you can complete the study if it started uh, before that time. And I think that will help to um, just, you know, from the FDA perspective, uh, allow continued access to the, you know, to this pathway uh, for both patients and the companies that would like to deliver uh, therapies uh, for these diseases of uh, high AMET need. And, and Nolan, before we, we wrap up here, I, I want to be able thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts. And um, the accelerated approval piece especially is, uh, I don't think it's something we talk enough about in the space. So you being able to provide that additional context, it really helps and give us also like some, some background and history on it. Uh, what's next for Lexio that really excites you every single day? Well, you know, I'm excited about the, the the therapies we're advancing. Uh, in, in particular, I think our you know Friedrich's ataxia product candidate is is very exciting. Um, it will give us an opportunity to uh, potentially deliver a treatment that could you know save lives for patients with the cardiovascular uh, manifestations of, of Friedrich's ataxia. And there's you know thousands of patients that uh, are you know developing these symptoms and um, we would hope to very quickly get a therapy out there for them. And frankly, this is the type of therapy that, you know, would squarely benefit or where patients could squarely benefit from an accelerated uh, pathway and, and getting the therapy there sooner. Um, so it's an example, actually a very, very uh, you know, very clear example of where um, if somehow this pathway were not available, um, you know, patients would be waiting longer for, you know, for a treatment. So I'm excited about the progress we're making in this partic- this program in particular, and I think what um, what we can do in the coming, you know, months and years to uh, get a get a therapy out there in in the near term. So that's what's exciting uh, coming up for us. Well, Nolan, I wish you and the company all the best of luck, and hopefully we can have you come back on in the near future and give us an update on where things are at, and then we can also uh, you know, pick your brain on some other thoughts on the space. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.